0: Well, a few weeks ago, we started our look at the book of 1 Thessalonians, and uh, several months ago, when I put out online uh, just a, a question related to certain things that people are curious about in the Bible, uh, because I was planning out my preaching schedule for this year, one of the things that came up as a curiosity question was the rapture, an event called the rapture. And as we're at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 today, we're starting at verse 13, This is the portion of Scripture, this is the primary portion of Scripture that people are talking about when they discuss the rapture. Now, if you have no idea what the rapture is, I'll reference uh, what it is in, in specific detail in just a few moments. But this is a portion of scripture that a lot of people have questions about, and so I was looking forward to having the opportunity to get to this this portion of the book, as we've been working our way through the book a section at a time. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to pick up at verse 13, and I'm just going to read down to verse 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting with verse 13, this is what it says. Lord, we're grateful for the privilege that it is to be able to take a look at this portion of your Word together today. We thank you, Lord, for each person that's that's with us today under the hearing of your Word. And Lord, we pray that you'd speak to our minds and that you'd speak to our hearts and that you'd help us to understand these things with clarity. We pray that you'd help us to understand these the, the greater point of what you're trying to communicate here through the Apostle Paul. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged to follow you in the midst of all circumstances, or whatever may come our way. So, Lord, we're grateful now for the privilege to be able to look at your word together. We commit this time to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when I was younger, uh, I I would say that I I feel like at that season of life, I had a lot more tolerance for argument than I do now. Uh, some people love to argue. I don't really like to argue, um, and I think I disappoint people when they want to argue and I won't play along. <laughs> but when I was younger, I was, all, I was on board. You know, years ago, I was more than happy to spend hours and hours and hours debating theological interpretations with people. I was more than happy to do it. I loved doing it at the time. Now it's not something that I uh, particularly enjoy doing. I, I actually thought it was funny. I'll point out someone to you. You know, they say you should never point out someone in a worship service because it might embarrass them. So everybody look at the back row on this side, uh, the guy with the glasses and the blue shirt. That's my good friend, Pastor James Sinkevage. And uh, for eight years, I had the privilege to pastor Cherry Street Bible Church up in Northeast Pennsylvania. And uh, he has been there ever since, ever since my last Sunday. My last Sunday was one Sunday before his first Sunday, and uh, he's been doing a great job up there. And Pastor James and I have been friends for a good long time. And uh, he and I remember, because we were both in this debate, so I guess I shouldn't just single myself out. But he and I, for three hours, years and years and years ago, tried to convince a friend who had just wacky theology of why he needed to agree with us, right? We spent three hours. And now I don't know that I'd have the, the patience to do that. At this point now, it's like, I don't know, just, just be dumb. It's fine, you know? I don't really think that, by the way, but, well, with that friend maybe, you know, but, um, but the point being, I used to have a lot of patience for, for that sort of stuff, and, and we would joke about it, but at the same time, I, you know, I'm at the point now where I, I just, I don't, I don't know what it is in me, I don't have the desire to really argue about different things like that anymore. Uh, many of you know that I run a blog, and I, I usually put, uh, kind of like an abbreviated version of each week's sermon on my blog. And uh, several months ago, someone started trolling my blog. I don't know if you know what that term means, but basically, it's when somebody just tries to take over the comment section on, on your blog and turn it into their own thing, right? And uh, I had posted something about uh, the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday and uh, this guy was just like going on and on and on about different things. And I responded to him several times about uh, his theological view. Then he made it very clear that he doesn't accept the, the teaching of the Bible as being authoritative. And so it became clear to me, we're not really having this discussion on the same terms, since I do believe that the Bible is authoritative. And uh, he was convinced of, my, of his perspective, I was convinced of my perspective, and eventually I decided... I'm not going to go back and forth about this forever because I think you just want to argue for the sake of arguing and I truly don't have time for that. But even those who accept the authority of scripture. So let's say that's a baseline and I don't know where you're at with that if you accept the authority of scripture or not. I do, but um but let's uh, let me make the assumption that we all uh accept the authority of scripture even in contexts like that. Well-meaning believers can at times get in heated debates over certain theological distinctives, and I mention that because one of those hot topics is what's brought up here in First Thessalonians chapter four. This is one of those hot topic issues. In this passage, we read about, and we we read a description here of an event that we typically refer to as the rapture. Now, quick show of hands is uh, just real quick. Have you ever heard of? the theological term, the rapture. Are you familiar with that? Just real quick. Okay, so many of us, right? Most of us. The rapture is the carrying away of believers into the air to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. But the term rapture is not actually in the Bible. And sometimes when you tell people that, they're actually surprised by it because it comes up in so many uh, theological discussions. It's not a term that's actually in the Bible. It's actually a term. uh, The term rapture comes from the Latin word rapio, and uh, in Latin, the word rapio, it means to catch up, or it means to take away, right? And so that's where we get this English transliterated word rapture. So in essence, it's the nickname that believers have given for the events that Paul is describing here in this passage of Scripture. And again, as we look at this widely debated topic, you'll notice that my tone today is not really one of debate. In fact, what I want to do as we look at this is just primarily just look at what the scripture actually says. Let's just look at what it says. And then also, I want to encourage you to do this. When you look at portions of scripture like this, we also need to get comfortable with a little amount of mystery here because there are certain things that the Lord's revealed to us. And there are other details that we'll know when he carries these things out. He hasn't given us every last detail. And so sometimes... What believers, in a well-meaning way, end up debating are the things that we think are logical deductions based on what we do know. We think, well, then, of course, that must mean this, and it must mean this. But I would suspect that sometimes we get those things wrong. So I don't really want to get things wrong as I'm preaching from a pulpit. I'd prefer to just stick to what it says here and let the Holy Spirit convict and convince our hearts of what's true. And in addition to that, as we're doing that, right, because we're going to get to that particularly in the second half of today's message, I want us to also understand and examine the matters that Paul is trying to clarify for the church about the nature of what God has in store for those who have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So actually, as Paul starts off this section, you'll notice that he begins so by uh, addressing a common problem. And the common problem that he begins here by addressing is the problem of grief or grieving. And one of the things that he makes emphasis of here when we start with verse 13, and I'll reread this in a second, is that believers in Christ grieve in a different way. Believers in Christ grieve in a different way. Let me reread verse 13. It says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And by the way, you realize that when it's saying asleep, it's the same way we use the term passed away. You know, if someone's asleep in this context, it's someone that's passed away, someone that has died. So he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He's talking about this fact that believers grieve in a different way. Now, put yourself in the context that this was being written. I think that's wise for us to do. Imagine you lived right then, during those years, right after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. What do you think it would have been like to be a believer during that season of history? What do you think that would have been like? Jesus declared to his followers that the day was coming when he would return. And they weren't told exactly when it would be, but they were encouraged to prepare for his return to happen at any time. You know, it could happen at any time. That's what he made, it, made abundantly clear during the course of his earthly ministry. Now, I'm guessing that if I personally lived during that era... I would have expected Jesus to return pretty soon after he ascended into heaven. I would have been among the people that thought he's probably not going to take all that long. I think I would have been surprised to discover that, you know, uh, two millennia later, that there'd be a group of people discussing these portions of Scripture on the other side of the world. I would think that this would all be done by that point. But it seems clear that the, the Thessalonian believers that they genuinely believed that Christ could return at any moment. That's one of the things you start to pick up as you go through Paul's letters to them. I think they were also of the opinion that Christ's return was going to be during their lifetime. I think that they thought that they would see that with their own eyes during that particular era. And I, I also imagine that that belief probably caused them to experience some concern for their brothers and sisters in Christ who passed away before they had the chance to see Christ's return. I think they were wondering about these things and debating these things, and some of that prompted Paul to give very specific details as we get into this portion of his letter to the Thessalonians. But I think that the Thessalonian church was probably worried that those who had passed away already maybe missed out on something, that they missed out on what Jesus had in store. So Paul gives some specifics here. Now, I imagine that these, by the way, are the same kinds of questions that we would probably be debating too if we didn't have access to the completed Bible. You know, here we are in our era, we have access to the completed Bible. At this point, it wasn't completed yet. These words were still being written down. But when people I love pass away, and we just had a family funeral this past week. Uh, so, you know, I was um, grieving with family. And when people we love pass away... I can't help but think about what they're seeing. I can't help but think about what they're experiencing. You know, what's it like for them right now? I'm familiar with what it was like before they took their last breath. But then after they took that last breath and now they're in the presence of the Lord, what are they seeing? What are they experiencing? I think it's natural to desire, you know, if you love people, you desire that they experience comfort, that they experience healing, that they experience protection in the arms of God. But again, since we haven't, since we haven't witnessed those heavenly things with our own eyes yet, the things that the Lord has in store for us, we haven't seen these things with our own eyes. We're dependent on what Scripture reveals to us to help us understand these things. So our curiosities are, are, are answered or met in what the Lord's revealed in His Word. And so here you have the Apostle Paul trying to comfort the Thessalonians with some information that apparently, as they're young Christians, they would not have necessarily been aware of yet. So he wants to teach them these things. And he told them he did not want them to be, the word he uses is uninformed. You know, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who had died. He didn't want them to grieve as if there was no hope for believers after our time on earth is complete. He wanted to remind them that as believers who have hope, we grieve in a different way. We grieve with hope. That is something we need to be well aware of, because I'm certain that if, if you live long enough, you're going to experience many seasons of grief in your life. And some of the, the most difficult psychological problems that people begin to experience in their life, sometimes they come back to not grieving properly or not allowing themselves to grieve. Many of you have probably gone through seasons where you've really fought allowing yourself to grieve. Uh, There are plenty of people that I know that have been living in denial for decades over things that they should just let themselves grieve it. Just let yourself grieve it. Grieve it with hope, but let yourself experience the grief. And when we grieve, we do so knowing that the Lord has good things in store for those who love Him. So that's the baseline of what Paul starts this section off with. But then he, he segues here, he transitions a little bit, And he starts to explain some details. And one of the things that he gets into the details here is he tells us, you know, so we do this with Christ in mind. We're thinking what Jesus had just experienced not too terribly long before these things were written. And he wants them to understand and wants us to understand that believers will also experience a resurrection. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, when you're reading through the scriptures, if you're reading from Genesis all the way through Revelation, you'll come across several key events, and it becomes very obvious that these are key events in God's plan for humanity. You'll find verses related to the creation of the world. You'll find verses related to the fall of mankind, when mankind fell into sin. You'll find verses related to the birth of Christ. You'll find verses related to the crucifixion of Christ. But the event that our faith hinges on is the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ rose from death, he was proven to be exactly who he said he was. He is the sinless Son of God who atoned for our sin, who defeated Satan and death, and he promises that we too are going to experience a resurrection like his. That is a great promise. That's something that I'm very happy that the Lord has assured us is coming our way. That's something the Lord has in store for those of us who know him. And as Paul was attempting here to explain the details of what happens to believers after they experience death, he wanted to to make certain that the church understood, he wanted to make it clear that the resurrection of Christ guarantees a resurrection for those who are united to Christ by faith scripture refers to us as being in Christ we are united to Christ by faith and as Christ experienced resurrection so too will those who are united to Christ also experience resurrection scripture also refers to us as the body of Christ and Christ's resurrection is a forepicture a foretaste of what's in store for us through faith in him so that means that if you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ you have received his gift of salvation, you will be raised from death. You will be raised with a brand new incorruptible body that's no longer subject to sin, it's no longer subject to disease, it's no longer subject to injury, it's no longer subject to death. I, I said to my wife this morning, I said, you know, last night I I went to bed with certain pains in my body after moving all the chairs from the carnival and being outside and all the things we were doing. I didn't even jump in the bounce houses, and yet I still felt uh, pain in my body last night as I went to bed after hosting that carnival yesterday here at the church. And and then I woke up this morning, and some of those pains were still there, and I thought if I slept, they would go away. So when I woke up this morning, I was like, why is my leg still hurting? I slept. It should go away, right? And we we look at our, our, our current frail body, and we realize how limited... It really is. It's got so many limitations. It's subject to all sorts of things, disease, injury, death, but the new body will not be. The new body doesn't come with aches and pains. It doesn't develop them either. That's something that God has assured us we can look forward to. In fact, I love what we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 and 21. It says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is speaking about what the Lord has in store for those who have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So again, Paul's, you can see what he's doing here is he's building this up here, right? So he's talking about grieving. Now he's talking about the resurrection. And then he goes on to develop this thought a little bit further. And he starts telling us the specific order of events that are going to take place. And he reveals, when you look at verses 15 and 16, that the dead in Christ will rise first. Keep in mind that the Thessalonians were wondering, what happens to our brothers and sisters in Christ who die before Christ comes? You know, if they're not here, when Christ, you know, if they're already dead when Christ returns, what happens to them? And Paul tells them, the dead in Christ will rise first. Look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. It says this, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord... Will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So they rise first. Several years ago, this was on, um, this was on 213. All right, so we were coming toward Langhorne on 213. I was driving a car. I had a friend with me. We were chatting. We were having a conversation about nothing important. I don't even remember what we were talking about. Uh, he and I were chatting as we drove, and we came up to a cross street. And I abruptly stepped on the brakes as we were coming up to that cross street. And not even a moment later, as after I abruptly stopped on the brakes there, another car jutted out into our lane. Came right out into the lane because they weren't paying attention. And uh, if I had not slammed on my brakes when I did, we would have hit them. But the whole thing seemed really, really weird to my friend. And he asked me, how did you know to stop? How did you know to stop right there? If you didn't catch that, we would have easily and most certainly crashed. How did you know to stop? And this is what I said to him. And, and this is exactly what was going on in my head. I told him I was looking ahead. We were talking, but I was still looking ahead. And I thought, you know what? Based on the way they have the front of that car position, and based on the fact that the driver is not looking in this direction, I'm getting a little nervous that that car might pull out. And so I kept my eye on it. And when I saw just the hint of movement from the bumper, I slammed on the brakes. And he did exactly what I thought he was going to do. He came out halfway into our lane, but we were stopped, and we didn't hit him. And the two of us were grateful to the Lord, but I I felt like the Lord brought that to my attention. But I was looking ahead. I was paying attention to what was ahead, and we didn't smack the car. Well, the day is coming when Jesus is going to return. Some people are looking ahead to that. And those that are looking ahead are going to be prepared for that day. And many others will not. Scripture reveals to us that Jesus is returning. And it reveals to us what we can expect. It's telling us all this ahead of time if we care to be interested in it. It's there if we're curious about it. Or we could just say, "Ah, eh, it's probably not true. It hasn't happened yet, so since it didn't happen yet, maybe it's not true. But it's all there if you choose to believe it. I definitely believe it. Christ is returning just as he came. You know, as the Scriptures prophesy for thousands of years, all these specific details about the, the first coming of Christ, Then he comes and he fulfills all those things that people had access to for hundreds and thousands of years. And then he fulfills it. And then we're given additional prophecies. Oh, by the way, this is what the next coming looks like. This is what the second coming looks like. But now, of course, we live in that era where it's like, ah, I don't know, I haven't seen it yet. I'll believe it when I see it, right? It's like, okay, well then you won't be prepared. But here you're given the details ahead of time. The Scripture tells us this is what it's going to look like. It reveals that Jesus is returning we're told several places what it's going to look like when he comes back, but I, I actually think it's interesting because some of those details were actually given in Acts chapter 1, right after he returned. And look what it says there. In Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 9, it says, "...and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven?" This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to come back in the same exact way. You don't need to stand there and stare. You're not going to miss it when he comes back. You know, it's kind of like you know, yesterday we had all the helium balloons here, right? You ever lose a helium balloon and then just see how long you could follow it? That's how I picture the apostles in that moment. They're just looking. I still see him. There he is. That is ridiculously high. I hope he doesn't fall. And then you just stay. It's like, I can't see him anymore. Could you see him? I can still see him. Peter, you stop. Always, always with the I can do this, always one and up somebody. And then you have have the angel saying, Hey, guys, you can just carry about your business. You're not going to miss it. When he comes back, he's going to come back in the same way. You'll know. You'll know. Carry on. You don't have to just stand there forever, right? I wonder, how long would they have just stood there, right? This was a favor to them. The angels are like, guys, carry on. 1 Thessalonians 4, you have the Apostle Paul sharing these details about Christ's return. And we're told that Jesus, when he comes back, when the day comes, we're told that Jesus will descend from heaven, there will be a great noise accompanying the, the event, including the cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. I don't know if these are three separate things or if what Paul's describing here are just like one loud noise. People debate if this is three separate distinct things or if this is just three names for the same type of thing. But regardless, I think it's going to be unmistakable. This is going to be an unmistakable event. That's how it's being described here. And at that point, we're told that the dead in Christ will rise from their graves. Now, I was just in a cemetery the other day, and I tend to think of cemeteries as a quiet place. I know a woman years ago, she used to tell me, an older lady that lived on my street, she said, when I was growing up, my favorite place to eat lunch every day was to go over to the cemetery that was right by where I worked. I used to drive her to church on Sunday mornings, and every time we would pass that cemetery, she would say, I always loved eating in the cemetery. And I used to, as a 16-year-old driving her to church, I used to say, why would you wanna eat your food in a cemetery? You know, why would you do that? She's like, oh, it's just, it's so quiet there, it's just so peaceful. Loved eating in the cemetery, and in my mind I was like, yeah, that's weird. And then when you get later in life, you're like, all I want is quiet. I will take quiet wherever I can find it. If quiet can be found in the cemetery, I will accept the cemetery. It doesn't matter, I just want silence. And, uh, and so I tend to think of cemeteries as a quiet place, and then when you look at what takes place here, you know, quiet place, not a lot of activity, right? But since I take this scripture literally, I suspect that there's going to be a day coming when many caretakers are going to have a very busy day, much busier day than they anticipated when they went to work that day, when Christ calls his people to join him in the air. And you have Paul describing the dead in Christ rising first. I, I, there's more details about this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 down to verse 44. There it says this, so, it is, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. So it's referring to our body being like a seed that's planted in the ground. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So the body that we currently have sown in the ground like a seed and then raised up imperishable, our new glorified body. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. So it's subject to decay. It's subject to sin. It's subject to pain. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And so the Scripture, you know, it it reveals to us that these are things that the Lord has in store for us, and Paul was trying to explain this to the people in Thessalonica. But how about this? What if you're one of the people that's still alive when Christ returns? You know, we're going to be in one of those two categories. Either you're going to die before he comes back, or you're going to be alive when he comes back. If he comes back tomorrow, well, odds are you're going to be there, right? So what about those that are still alive when Christ comes back? Well, the Scripture tells us that the living will be caught up together with those that have died in Christ and will join them together in the air. Look what it says in verse 17. It says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So again, after the dead in Christ have been raised, those who are still living, the Scripture reveals here, will be raptured, right? They'll be carried away. They'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. We'll meet up together with them in the air, and from that time forward, we will always be with the Lord, the Scripture says. That's certainly something we should be looking forward to as we await that day. That's something I'm absolutely looking forward to. And by the way, if you're in Christ, you're going to experience it one way or another. Either your dead body is going to be raised, an imperishable body, or your current body is going to be transformed in the process of meeting the Lord in the air. But one way or another, you're going to get to see these things if you know Christ. But here's where the debate tends to come in. There's actually several debates, but this is where people tend to debate this stuff. When will these things happen? Scripture tells us that it's going to happen. But does anyone here see, oh, it's going to happen on this day or this day or this day? All sorts of people make try and make predictions about those things, and they're welcome to do that if they want to establish for the world that they're kooks, right? Um, Because the Scripture doesn't tell you those things on purpose. It's not telling you those things. So if you ever meet somebody that tells you exactly when it's going to be, you can just rest assured, you come back to this moment and say, you know what, I distinctly remember our pastor calling you a kook. You are insane. You're making stuff up because you want attention. But the Scripture tells us this. You know, this is the, de- well, well, this is the debate, right? This is where, where people tend to debate. We debate when these things are going to happen. Not so much that they're going to happen. I know there's some debate, you know, from some camps, I guess, on that. But, but mo- it's more along the lines of when it's going to happen. And when we read through the book of Revelation, I don't know if you've ever read through that book. I'd encourage you to read it. First time you read it through, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of things that you kind of put question marks by. Like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. But it tells us that this earth is going to experience a time Uh, A seven-year period of time referred to as a time of tribulation or the tribulation. And it's a time when divine judgment is going to be poured out upon this earth. And it's not going to be an enjoyable time to be living on this planet, but people question, will believers experience it or will Christ carry them away? Will Christ rapture them before it begins? This is where people start arguing these things. Now, there's three views on this subject, and I'll just give you a quick overview on it. The first view is this. It's, it's called a pre-tribulational rapture view, right? Because it happens before the tribulation, according to this view. So that seven-year period of tribulation, the pre-tribulation rapture view, teaches that Christ will rapture His church sometime before that tribulation begins. Uh, most of the pastors that I grew up with and most of the Bible teachers that I had in college held to that view, that the, the, the church would be raptured prior to the tribulation. The mid-tribulational view teaches that Christ is going to rapture his church at the midpoint of the tribulation, because the Bible talks about the first three and a half years of, the, of that seven-year period being bad, but then the second three and a half years being the great tribulation, and, um, and some people say, no, we think it's going to happen at the midpoint. That the rapture of the church happens at the midpoints. So that's the mid tribulational view. And there's one other view, and the, the the other view is the post tribulational view that teaches that believers will remain on this earth during that full seven year period of time, and then Christ will return to take them with him. So which view is correct? Let's fight. Right? <laughs> Let's just argue. Right? Can you imagine how dumb that must sound to somebody that doesn't know Christ to hear Christians argue, well, I'm mid-trib, and I'm post-trib, and I'm pre-trib. It's like, nope, you're all morons. Every single one of you, right? That is not the point of looking at these views and discussing these things. That's not what the scripture's getting at when it starts to give us hints of these things. The idea is that your heart is pointed upward. That you understand that Christ is going to do these things in His time when he decides, I am much less dem- dogmatic about which view, uh, like, we're going to know. We're going to know when it happens which view was 100% correct. And you know what I end up discovering? You know, when you look at what people were so certain of his first coming look- looking like and the theological camps that developed about what his first coming was going to look like, you see that they got a lot of things right and some key things wrong that they became overly dogmatic about. So I've decided I'm not going to get overly dogmatic about things related to end times, or people talk about that, like the theological term is eschatological, right? The the end times studies, right? I'm not going to get dogmatic about it. I don't feel like that's an issue I need to be dogmatic about. I would prefer to just look at what the Scripture says and say, okay, this is what it clearly says. Here are some possible deductions you can make from that. But I'm not, like, they're secondary issues. The main issue is that Christ is coming back for His church. The secondary issue, in my mind at least, is whether or not it happens at this exact spot or this exact spot or this exact spot. He didn't overly specify. So again, regardless of whichever view you think is correct, I don't think it's fruitful to argue about those things. But I do feel grateful to know that the Lord has good things in store for us who are united to Christ. We have the privilege of living with Him forever. That's what the scripture is getting at. That's the bigger point, right? Living with him forever. It's a genuine blessing that does not change or doesn't get altered because of your eschatological view. And there's one other thing that the Apostle Paul brings up for us here that I think is hyper important, and that's this. Encourage one another with this truth. Don't argue with each other about this encourage one another with this truth. We do the exact opposite of what the very portion of Scripture that's speaking about these events tells us to do. It started so many debates and so many arguments, and Paul says, encourage one another with this truth. It's like, I don't know how to do that. That sounds hard, so I'm more familiar with arguing, so I think I will do that, right? But it says in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. So Paul's desire was that believers learn this truth that they teach it to one another, that they encourage one another with these, with these specific words. And again, we're called to remind one another of the hope that we have in Christ, whether we're presently in the season of grief, whether we're right now in a season of sorrow, whether right now we're, we're in a season of adversity, whatever season you're in, or whether everything seems smooth and fine. The point is, regardless, Jesus hasn't forgotten you. He's coming back for you. He's going to transform you and you're going to be with Him forever, incorruptible with power that He shares with you. That encourages my heart because there's a lot of difficult things that the Lord's asked me to go through during the course of my life. And I know that there's going to be more difficult things if He allows me to live. There'll be more things that come my way. So I want my heart encouraged with the hope of what comes next because It supersedes all the things that I have to deal with in the present. These things last for a moment, but look at what we have to look forward to. And so Paul was saying, listen, when you're grieving, when people you love pass away, when you're going through difficult seasons, remember what what the Word of God has taught us. Encourage one another with this truth. Encourage one another with these words that Christ has a future plan for you where you will be united to Him for all eternity. And as we finish up, I just want to show you one last encouraging set of verses And that's this. It's from Romans chapter 8, starting with verse 37. I'll read down to verse 39. But it says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together today. Lord, we're grateful for it. We're thankful for it. We're we're grateful for the things that you reveal to us about what you have in store. Lord, we pray that as we look at these things that we wouldn't that we wouldn't use them as a as an excuse to argue or try and debate or try and one-up somebody else or try and necessarily, um, in an argumentative way, necessarily persuade try and persuade somebody about a secondary issue of theology. Lord, there are more important things that you've called us to do with our lives. And at the same time, it is valuable to look at these things and to, to wrestle with them, but we can do so in a way where we still come back to the encouragement that you've given us through them. And Lord, I know that at least for me, there are so many times that I, I really feel like I, I just kind of missed that point. I feel like I was just looking at this as a way that I could maybe try and win an argument or win a debate and uh, just become more dogmatic or more certain about a secondary view. And Lord, I'm grateful that over the course of my life that you've, you've toned that down for me and... I feel like one of the things that you've been teaching me is just to, to notice the bigger point of what you're trying to communicate. And so, Lord, I pray that that's something that you'd help each of us with as we wrestle with these things. We're just so grateful for the fact that you have a future and a hope in store for us. Lord, we know we don't deserve that. We know that so many of us have spent just many, many years either ignoring you, pretending like you don't matter, thinking that, that you're just kind of a an afterthought in our mind, going about life basically just living for our own comfort or our own entertainment and really not thinking much about you and then we look at all the good things that you've done for us and all the good things that you have in store for those who know you through your son jesus christ and it has us scratching our heads thinking why don't i think about these things more why doesn't this matter to me more so lord i pray that this would matter to each of us that you'd help us to start seeing with your eyes that we would see what's ahead that we wouldn't just be people who just get all caught up in a moment and forget that there's things up ahead that we need to be paying attention to. Lord, help us to be prepared for that day. Lord, I don't know where everyone's heart is right now, but I pray that if there be any of us who as of yet do not know you through your Son, that today would be the day that they place their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and experience His free gift of salvation, and begin looking toward the future with hope, with joy recognizing that you have good, good things in store for your children. Thank you, Lord, for counting us as part of your family through your Son. Thank you for uniting us with your Son. Thank you for the resurrection that you promised us we will enjoy because of our relationship with your Son. We're grateful for all these things, Lord, and we're thankful for the reminders that you've given to us today as we've looked at your Word together. We commit ourselves to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.